Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. In this episode... I'll be telling the story of the real life of one of the actors from Dad's Army, that comedy cult classic. His real name was Arnold Ridley, and he played Private Godfrey, the gentle platoon medic. And to be honest, he's a fine example of the truth being stranger than fiction. William Arnold Ridley was born in Walcott, Bath, England, the son of Rosa Caroline and William Robert Ridley. His father was a gymnastics instructor and ran a boot and shoe shop. William Ridley was an outstanding athlete who, in his spare time, taught boxing, fencing and gymnastics. Arnold inherited his father's love of sports, although he claimed he also inherited his mother's total lack of ability to play them. He attended the Clarendon School and the Bath City Secondary School, where he was a keen sportsman. A graduate of the University of Bristol, he studied at the Education Department in the hope of becoming a teacher, and played Hamlet in a student production. Ridley undertook teaching practice at an elementary school in Bristol. Ridley was a student teacher, and had made his theatrical debut in Prunella at the Theatre Royal, Bristol, when he volunteered for service with the British Army, on the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914. He was initially rejected because of a hammer toe. Ridley continued as a school teacher in Bristol until volunteering again on the 8th of December 1915. By this time, the army had lost so many men as a result of the fighting on the Western Front, they accepted Ridley. He later recalled, I thought I was doing my duty for my country. I didn't know I was going to be treated like a convict. Did it make better soldiers of the callow youths we were then? I doubt it. Word of the week. And for this week's word, I'm proud to present... Archie, which is apparently derived from an old music hall song called Archibald, certainly not. 
Archie was a British military slang word in World War I for German anti-aircraft fire. Its use is credited to an RAF pilot, Vice Marshal Amiers Borton, who apparently had a habit of singing the song's defiant chorus, Archibald, certainly not, get back to work at once, sir, like a shot, as he flew his airplane between the exploding German shells on the Western Front. In World War I, Arnold Ridley was a private with the Somerset Light Infantry, and after basic training, he arrived in Arras in March 1916. Ridley had removed his marksman's badge because he did not want to be made a sniper. He later commented, I didn't go to France to murder people. He saw active service in the war, sustaining several wounds in close quarter battle. Ridley was only on the front line for two days when he was hit in the back by shrapnel. After he recovered, he rejoined his regiment in the trenches. Soon afterwards, he was shot in the thigh and he was sent back to England. In July 1916, Ridley returned to the Western Front to take part in the Somme offensive. He entered no man's land on the 18th of August. 15 of the men in his group were killed or seriously injured soon after they left the trenches when a preliminary barrage dropped on them instead of the German machine gun posts. During the attempt to reach Delville Wood, Ridley's battalion suffered nearly 50% casualties. He later said, It wasn't a question of if I get killed, it was merely a question of when I get killed. On the 15th of September, 1916, Ridley and his regiment attempted to break the main German defence lines at Fleurs. For the first time in history, the infantry were accompanied by the recently invented tank. We in the ranks had never heard of tanks. We were told that there was some sort of secret weapon and then we saw this thing go up the right-hand corner of Delville Wood. I saw this strange and cumbersome machine emerge from the shattered shrubbery and proceed slowly down the slope towards Fleurs. Despite suffering heavy casualties, Lance Corporal Ridley and the Somerset Light Infantry were ordered to head for the village of Goudicor. The trenches were full of water. And I can remember getting out of the trench and lying on the parapet with bullets flying around because sleep was such a necessity and death only meant sleep. Ridley reached a trench that was occupied by the German army. I went round one of the traverses, as far as I remember, and somebody hit me on the head with a rifle butt. I was wearing a tin hat, fortunately, but it didn't do me much good. A chap came at me with a bayonet aiming for a very critical part, naturally, and I managed to push it down. I got a bayonet wound in the groin. After that, I was still very dizzy from this blow to the head, presumably. I remember wrestling with another German, and the next thing I saw, it appeared to me that my left hand had gone, and after that I was unconscious. Luckily for Ridley, after he passed out during his fight in a German trench with the enemy, some other members of the Somerset Light Infantry saved him from certain death. However, 
The German's bayonet had cut deeply into his left hand, cutting the tendons to his fingers. He was also bleeding badly from the groin wound and had suffered a fractured skull. I always remember my disappointment the next morning when I found out that my hand was still on because I thought, well, if I lost my hand, I'm all right, I shall live. They can't send me out without a hand again. I was 20 then. It's not altogether a right thought for a young man to hope he's been maimed for life. Ridley was sent back to England and spent some time at Woodcote Park Military Hospital before appearing before the British Army Travelling Medical Board. The doctor suggested that the wound to his hand might have been self-inflicted. Ridley replied... Yes, sir, my battalion is famous for self-inflicted wounds, and just to make sure, I cracked my skull with a rifle butt as well and ran a bayonet into my groin. The aftermath of the blow to the head from a German soldier's rifle butt left him prone to blackouts after the war. He was medically discharged from the army with the rank of Lance Corporal on 27th of August, 1917, at the age of only 20. And now, my friends, it's time for the next instalment of our big Bristol to London stroll. The big Bristol to London stroll. The big Bristol to London stroll. The big Bristol to London stroll. Hello and welcome to the big Bristol to London stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals, on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. This week, we're in Trowbridge, which is the county town of Wiltshire, England, on the River Biss in the west of the county. The Kennet and Avon Canal is to the north of Trowbridge and it played an instrumental part in the town's development as it allowed coal to be transported from the Somerset coal field and so marked the advent of steam-powered manufacturing in woollen cloth mills. The town was the biggest producer of contemporary clothing and blankets in the southwest of England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, by which time it held the nickname the Manchester of the West. It also gained a reputation for high-quality cloth. This reputation meant that in later years, royals from across Europe sought out Trowbridge cloth for special orders. In 1747, Elizabeth, Empress of Russia, sent an agent to Trowbridge to order plump cloths and good full colours. Daniel Defoe recorded that Trowbridge was famed for the finest medley Spanish cloths, not in England, but in the whole world. The first mention of Trowbridge Castle was in 1139, when it was besieged. It was no longer in military use by the 14th century, and by the 16th, only ruins remained. The castle is thought to have been a Mott and Bailey castle, and its influence can still be seen in the town today. Fore Street follows the path of the Castle Ditch, and the town has a Castle Street and the Castle Place shopping centre. One of Trowbridge's most recognisable landmarks, the Blind House, was used as a lock-up for overnight guests of the law during the 18th and 19th centuries. 
wrongdoers locked up in the blindhouse would have ranged from serious criminals who would be held until they could be put before a justice and committed to trial, to drunks who would be released in the morning when they had sobered up. Sometimes sympathetic bystanders would even fetch beer and feed it to the prisoners by using one of the long churchwarden pipes pushed through a slit in the wall. A wall carving in one of the cells dates the building at 1758, but some believe that it might date back to the late 17th century. The roof sustained serious damage in July 1942, when a German bomb fell on the upper part of Stellard Street, badly damaging what was the Royal British Legion Club, now Bridge House, and unfortunately resulting in the death of two civilians. Join us in our next instalment when we walk along the Canet and Avon Canal to Devizes. And remember, we're walking this 370 kilometre route all in aid of the Suicide Prevention Bristol Charity. And if you want to do your bit to support us, go to Just Giving and type in Backtracker History Show and you should find a page dedicated to our cause. See you next time. And now back to Arnold Ridley, who, after the war, found work as a teacher. However, in 1919, he joined the Repertory Theatre in Birmingham. Over the next three years, he appeared in over 40 productions. Ridley also wrote his own plays, including the highly successful The Ghost Train in 1923 and The Wrecker in 1924. The Bath Chronicle of April 1919 said... Mr Arnold Ridley, the only son of Mr and Mrs W. R. Ridley of Manver Street, Bath. We are pleased to hear is making gratifying progress in the histrionic art. This clever young actor's success is all the more pleasing as he suffers a considerable handicap by a wound received in the Somme fighting of 1916. As a lance corporal in the 6th Somersets, he had a deadly hand-to-hand encounter with a German near Delville Wood, and the Hun bayonet pierced his left hand, cutting a sinew, with the consequence that Mr Ridley's forearm is practically useless. But this defect he artistically camouflages in his stage makeup. During his time, Ridley was very prolific at writing and wrote stories and scripts for several films, including Third Time Lucky in 1930, Keepers of Youth in 1931, Blind Justice in 1934, and Seven Sinners and the Royal Eagle, both in 1936. earlier about the script that Arnold wrote called The Ghost Train. Ridley was inspired to write the play in 1923 after being stranded for an evening at Mangotsfield Railway Station near Bristol during a rail journey through the Gloucestershire countryside. The deserted station's atmosphere combined with hearing the non-stop Bath to Gloucester Express using a nearby main line to bypass Mangotsfield 
created the illusion of a train approaching, passing through and departing, but not being seen. This experience impressed itself on Ridley's senses, and the play took him only a week to write. After a premiere in Brighton, it transferred to London's St Martin's Theatre, where, despite unenthusiastic reviews from the theatre press critics, it played to sell our audience from November 1925 to March 1927. It was a tale of passengers stranded at a haunted railway station in Cornwall, with one of the characters being a detective trying to catch smugglers. The station master tries to persuade them to leave the site as he is closing the station for the night. They refuse to leave, citing the lack of alternative accommodation for several miles around. He warns them of the supernatural danger of a spectral passenger train, the ghost of one that fatally wrecked in the locality several years before that sometimes haunts the line at night, bringing death to all those who set their eyes upon it. Incredulous of his story, they still refuse to leave, and he departs, leaving them facing the night at the station. The play ran for over a year in its original sold-out London theatrical run, and is regarded as a modern minor classic. It established the 20th century dramatic genre of strangers stranded together in a railway scenario in constrained circumstances, thrillers, leading to the films such as The Lady Vanishes in 1938, Night Train to Munich, 1940, The Taking of Pelham 123, 1974, and Narrow Margin in 1990. The theatre show became a huge success, enjoying 665 performances in London's West End and two revivals. Ridley was specific about how the train effects should be produced, at the back of the acting edition of the script is a list of equipment required to simulate a Banshee Express. It includes a garden roller propelled over fence struts 30 inches apart, an 18-gallon galvanised tank, an E-flat bell, an auctioneer's hammer, and most importantly, for that blood-curling whale, three air cylinders available from British oxygen company Wembley or local agent the Ghost Train was first filmed in 1931 and again in 1941 when it starred Arthur Askey. Ridley rejoined the army in 1939 following the outbreak of the Second World War. He was commissioned into the General List on the 7th of October 1939 as a second lieutenant. During his time in military service in the Second World War, he adapted the Agatha Christie novel Peril at N House into a West End play that premiered in 1940. He served with the British Expeditionary Force in France during the Phony War, employed as a conducting officer, tasked with supervising journalists who were visiting the front line in France. He later admitted that... Within hours of setting foot on the quay at Cherbourg in September 1939, I was suffering from acute shell shock again. It is quite possible that outwardly I showed little, if any, of it. It took the form of mental suffering that at best could be described as an inverted nightmare. Ridley was evacuated from Dunkirk in May 1940 on the overcrowded destroyer HMS Vermeera, 
which was the last British ship to escape from the harbour during the Battle of Boulogne. Shortly afterwards, he was discharged from the armed forces on health grounds. He relinquished his commission as a captain on the 1st of June 1940 and subsequently joined the Home Guard in his hometown of Caterham. In 1944, he escaped serious injury when his cottage in Caterham was hit by a flying bomb. For the rest of his life, he suffered horrific nightmares and regularly woke drenched in sweat. If he was disturbed in any way, his first instinct was to attack. After the war, Ridley appeared on stage, radio and television. This included the part of Doey Hood in The Arches. He also featured in Crossroads and Coronation Street. In 1968, Arnold was offered the role of Private Charles Godfrey and he starred in 80 episodes of Dad's Army until 1977. Colleagues from the show commented that he had been forced to work long into his old age by financial circumstances, but he said himself that his great fear was being forced to retire. The show peaked at 18 million viewers and earned Arnold an OBE in 1982 for his services to drama. Ridley died in hospital in Northwood in 1984 at the age of 88 after falling at his residence in Denville Hall, a home for retired actors. His body was cremated at Golders Green Crematorium and an urn holding his ashes was buried in his parents' grave at Bath Abbey Cemetery. His collection of theatrical memorabilia was left to the University of Bristol and has been made available online. Apart from the OBE, which he received on the 1982 Queen's New Year's Honours List for services to theatre, Arnold Ridley was also the subject of This Is Your Life in 1976, when he was surprised by Eamon Andrews at London's Marylebone Station. And more recently, the actors from Dad's Army each featured on a special edition stamp to mark the 50th anniversary of the classic comedy in 2018. Each of them including the gentle, adorable medic Private Godfrey, have their own stamp, with their best-known comic lines from Dad's Army immortalising the classic show forever. Private Godfrey's stamp featured his most famous line from the comedy, Do you think I might be excused? And it will be a collector's item. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. News just in. A man has been admitted to hospital in Bristol after swallowing six plastic horses. His condition has been described as stable. 
in the day facts. Let's start off with the 12th of June, 1667, when the first successful blood transfusion from a sheep to a 15-year-old boy was carried out in Paris by Professor Jean-Baptiste Denis. On the 13th of June in 1942, Queen Victoria made her first railway journey from Slough to Paddington. The great western railway engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel acted as deputy engine driver. On the 15th of June 1915, the first meeting of the Women's Institute in the UK took place in North Wales. On the 16th of June 1903, Pepsi Cola was officially registered as a trademark with the US Patent Office. And on exactly the same day, US car engineer and manufacturer Henry Ford founded his motive manufacturing company. And lastly, on the 18th of June, 1983, the USA's first female astronaut, Sally Ride, went into space on board the Space Shuttle Challenger. I have to say a huge thank you to Joe Wilson and Catherine Ayres for adding the voices and bringing the story to life. listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>